Welcome to The Bookshelf, a program of Spokane Public Radio overseen by Vern Windham, who bears the grand title of executive producer. We're in the midst of John Graves' book titled From a Limestone Ledge, more specifically right now, his discourse about country dwellers' need to notice things, from the tiniest bugs to the largest creatures, both wild and domestic. He calls it fitting in with one's world. The real ones of this breed, those who have soaked up country habits and knowledge since childhood, grow older and fewer and amount perhaps too little in times geared to specialized agribusiness and the urban public it serves. Yet a good many of us latecomers and part-timers in the country admire the best of them and their ways, learning a little bit of what they know when we get a chance and imitating them as best we can in the privacy of our own terrain like a movie-struck kid taking off Steve McQueen before the bathroom mirror, having learned the hard way that ignorance vis-a-vis the landscape can cost dearly in dead or strayed or ailing animals and failed crops and whatnot, we pick up what we can from books and county agents and maybe evening ag college courses, but this other kind of skill is seldom peddled in such places. It comes from living attentively on your own land, and sometimes, when you're lucky, getting to watch someone intelligent who spent a lifetime living that way. If on a clear day in October there's a single dark puff of cloud on the northwestern horizon, such a man sees it within moments of coming outside, that swift eye sweep of the sky that you find in all old rurals, even those ending their days in rest homes and wheeled onto a terrace for air, and gauges its probable meaning. Bouncing through a pasture in a pickup and passing a cow on her left side, he somehow discerns a wire cut on her right shoulder and checks it out for screw worms, hemorrhage, or infection. At supper, he may rise from the table in response to sounds that others have not heard and go to the porch to learn where a pack of marauding dogs is running or a family of coyotes has its base. On a dusty path in the hills, he can tell you, if asked, what creatures meek or fierce have trotted or slithered and shuffled there the night before. Distant columns of smoke have messages for him, as do neighbors' tractor sounds, shots, the urgent cries of jaybirds and crows, the alarm coughs of unseen deer, hillside seeps, and the tinge of blooming sweet clover on damp evening air. All these things lodge in him and combine into understanding, for they are part of his world, and so quite integrally is he. Such honed vigilance is ancient, of course, tracing back to primitive tribesmen with eyes like falcons and noses like setter dogs, and to the half-wild trappers and frontiersmen who felt out our continent for conquest not very long ago. In the best of their airs, it's by no means always economic and slant, but adds up in part to useless wisdom, because having been led by circumstances into focusing good brains on natural phenomena, instead of the civilized world's bright clutter and jabber and stink, they follow curiosity where it leads, like academics, amassing knowledge for its own sake. Many have read a good bit, and some have college degrees. I have one ranching friend, an Aggie ripe in years, who is always good for a couple of hours ruminative expert discussion of wild vegetation in our area, utile or not, and long ago I knew a laconic old hill country native 
who had more information on red ants than I've seen in books. Admittedly, I'm no deep reader on the subject, and admired them so much that he hated to disturb their beds in the course of farming and was hostile toward people who poisoned them. I liked him, respected his knowledge, but was not converted, and to this day rather enjoy any chance to discommode the testy little bastards and get a measure of revenge for the many times one has climbed up my pants for a bite. Plowing is one way, though in certain years other small beings are upset by it too and express enough resentment for both themselves and the ants. Roaring along on your tractor, you may find yourself suddenly in the middle of a towering cloud of bumblebees or the stubby yellow jackets that hive up by the thousands in burrows and full many a crooked furrow or indeed a deserted machine has resulted from such attacks. Days are when you see and touch things. Nights are when other senses come most into play. Partly for this reason, I don't much like closed bedrooms and really prefer sleeping on a screened porch, as I used to do all year long till a couple of Arctic winters in a row chased me back inside. Ensconced on a porch with your head sticking out of the covers and only a film of wire gauze between you and the vast starred blackness outside, you're in time with the night or at any rate, as much in time with it as your perception will let you be. The far-off rising groan of Big Macs and Whites as they shift to low gear in the hills of U.S. 67 means a drift of air from the southeast, and means also that the Gulf moisture may give the region a shot at wanted rain in the next few days. A standard whiff of polecat, not unpleasant, tells you only that one is foraging somewhere but a stouter whang indicates he may be at your hives again, scrabbling with his claws at the entrance to bring the bees out in their dudgeon, then gobbling them up with stings for seasoning. Cows with milk-taught bags bawl urgently for roving offspring, and if one hungry answer comes from a wrong direction and lasts too long and sounds a trifle desperate, you know that a calf has blundered through a fence and you'll have to do something about it in the morning. Coyotes on the hill to the east yap and wail and trill in sudden course for a minute or two to establish hunting contact, or possibly just for the love of music. Then go silent. Owls talk. A cottontail shrieks as something grabs it. A being unknown says, Hark, oh, hark, oh, hark, in the west. A dog's voice goes softly, Woo, woo, in the distance. And you know that the Edwards kid is out with his mongrel silent trailer again, and they've treed something, which leads you into a reflection on the high pelt prices that have all furred varmints under siege. Hens on a live oak branch beside the house stir and mutter in sleep. Leghorns rescued by your daughter from the biology lab at school. They grew up as gentle pets and refused to roost in the barn where the rape-minded gamecock and his combative harem of one hold sway. The sheepdog snores and snuffles on the concrete floor beside your bed, but wakes to growl in his throat at something, maybe old woo-woo. Nights are thus very rich, right on into that zone of fading consciousness where real noises and smells blend with dozing illusion, and afterward too, for that matter, since the sleep of attunement is light, if sound, and doesn't much mind interruption. I remember once having a dream in which a buzzing, clucking, angry, continuous voice took on the shape of whirlpooling points of light, then waking and going out into frozen moon glow 
to find that Blue, our only dog then, had treed a ringtail and a hackberry beside the garden. And I didn't resent the waking, or the cold, or the effort, since they served to teach me the exact origin of that sound I had heard before in ignorance, thinking it was probably coons. But I confess it may take a special sort of picayunish concern with natural things to see the matter so. Eh, picayunish or not, it is a sort of concern, sometimes practical, sometimes not, that I share with a lot of other people out beyond the city's rims. And if it is a far cry from being able to slumber rosily through the pandemic nightly din of Union Square and to glance with unseeing eyes at the antics of fat ladies squabbling half-clad in a restroom, I guess what the difference really has to do with is belonging. What it may show is that when you're somewhere you don't especially want to be and don't belong, you tend to wall yourself off from sentience, like a hibernating bear. Whereas in surroundings that you care for and have chosen, you use eyes, ears, nose, taste buds, and whatever other aid you can muster for reception. You notice, and noticing, you live. In chapter 13, John Graves shares thoughts about weather. He calls this chapter, Weather, Between East and West. Cold, the physics textbooks used to claim, and probably still do, is merely an absence of heat and thus doesn't really exist. I can accept this idea on faith, as one accepts so many dicta these days, right up to the notion of black holes in space, but in practical ways, I've never been able to make much sense out of it. The malevolence of a January day when a sleet-flecked 14-degree wind from out of the Canadian Arctic is buffeting my numb self as I lurch zombie-like except for curses about my daily rural tasks doesn't strike me as the absence of anything, really, but the presence of itself. So does a handful of ice cubes making bell music against the side of a glass of some pleasant stimulant on a sun-baked August afternoon. Similarly, I guess it could be said that dryness is just a shortage of wetness, but it too has stout identity when rain refuses to fall, grasses and crops go dormant or die, and planted seeds won't sprout. And it is these four things and their interplay, heat, cold, moisture, drought, that make up most of what we call weather, wherever we happen to live. On occasion, wind gets into it powerfully, too, of course, as do things like mountains, oceans, latitudes, barometric highs and lows, but most of the time these serve as mere determinants of the amount and frequency and form in which any given place receives the four basics. In our time and in our part of the world, a good proportion of people are more or less divorced from worry over weather, except as it relates to outdoor pleasures like golf and water skiing. Their agricultural impulse, if any, is largely limited to lawns and shrubs that can be kept alive with cheap, plentiful hydrant water if clouds fail to do the job. The houses they live in and the buildings where they work are engineered to provide those year-round temperatures and humidities most agreeable to lightly decked, sedentary human torsos. A lawyer philosopher friend of mine maintains that they're best for the psyche and brain as well, and cites Plato's cave, which he insists remained a steady 72 degrees Fahrenheit in all seasons, just as his home and office do. 
Since Plato, as I recall, didn't live in the cave, but only used it as a metaphor, I don't know what this would prove if true, but there it is. What is certain is that our cities have grown dependent on such ameliorations, and if the energy shortage ever gets bad enough that air conditioners die en masse, a jaundiced non-cave dweller expects the cloud of dust raised by Wisconsinites and upper New York staters and other boreal DPs stampeding out of the sunbelt for home will very likely rival the one caused by Krakatoa when it blew in 1883. Weather will matter once more in towns and cities then, and those of us who grew up in urban Texas before cooling equipment prevailed can vouch that what will matter most down here is summer heat, especially in the sort of houses and office buildings that have become the rule. Nearly all kinds of weather will still matter out in the sticks, even to people who live in cooled, centrally heated homes and own tractors and pickups whose cabs are equivalently deweatherized. For despite such little technological havens, much of what countrymen have to do still is in the full outdoors and their heaviest concerns, the growth and well-being of crops and grasses and beasts, are tied to the climate's vagaries during whatever season. There's no way they can get around thinking about the weather. It is integral to their context and their being. So they still study it, talk at length about it, predict what it will do, and brood when it turns out wrong for their purposes. Those purposes often being divergent, what weather is right at a specific time and place, can be a relative question. A July cloudburst that fills shrinking stock ponds with water and starts pasture grass to shooting up green and tender and swells cattlemen's hearts with satisfaction may enrage a fellow whose nearly ripe bottomland milo needs no water and has just been expensively sprayed against bugs. Peanut farmers in my neighborhood dislike fall rains, welcomed by everybody else because they can delay harvest and make undug goobers go moldy in the ground or an unrelieved eight weeks of damp, bitter cold in late winter and what ought to be early spring, anathema to farmers who want to get started plowing and planting and to stockmen who have to shell out cash for extra feed and catch flu while doling it out to their animals may be viewed as a special boon by a purveyor of firewood or propane or a man with a commercial peach orchard who knows such weather will ensure the long dormancy that his trees require to make a good crop in summer. And since orchardist and woodcutter and stockman and farmer may not only be neighbors, but indeed at times may inhabit the same denim jacket, the wishes that hover in the air at such times are so opposed that should some beneficent force chance to be listening, he might well wonder wherein beneficence lies. An interesting example of this sort of thing was an old lady's statement I overheard one day in April when I picked up the telephone to make an urgent call and found, as often, that the party line was occupied. I wish, she said in a cracked, slow, musing voice that gave promise the two of them would be maundering on for at least another half hour, it would rain real hard on my radishes and onions, but not on my crowder peas. Climatically, as well as culturally, Texas is a transitional region between East and West. The 98th meridian, viewed by the late Walter Prescott Webb as the essential boundary between the two, 
bisects the state a little east of center, and wavering back and forth across this meridian in rough coincidence with it, is another imaginary but meaningful line, the 30-inch isogette of average annual rainfall. In these latitudes, generally speaking, ordinary eastern-style agriculture dependent on rain is feasible with 30 inches or more of moisture per year. In other words, to the east of the line, whereas less means a rural economy based more on rain stock raising with farming restricted to drought-resistant grass-like crops, such as wheat and the grain sorghums, except in zones where water from rivers or reservoirs or underground deposits can be tapped for irrigation. Webb defined these things for us, but he based his definition on the tough experience of hordes of farmers, including his own father, who during the closing decades of the 19th century and the early ones of the 20th ventured out beyond 30 inches to try to raise eastern cash crops, mainly cotton, on homestead-sized tracts of unirrigated land. Occasional abnormally wet years kept hope alive for a good while, and some farmers are still making the effort usually with more sophisticated techniques and on a larger scale. But most small-timers gave up the sweaty fight during the Dust Bowl years of the 30s, if not before. Normality in the long run had prevailed and beaten them down. Normality being drought, and drought being not only a probability west of 98, but a constant possibility well to its east also. Nature deals less in lines than in zones and conditions in areas of transition are fragile because they're so easily altered from year to year by small variations in things like moisture, which would make little practical difference to people in, say, the damp forest near the Louisiana line. If in some relatively wet years the 30-inch rainfall line strays a good way west of 98, gladdening hard-bitten survivors in near west Texas, in others, it will unpredictably move eastward and strew agricultural ruination up and down the rich blackland prairies and the post oak belt. If you add to this the fact that in western reaches of the transition zone and beyond it, range grasses may often not get enough precipitation to feed the cattle that depend on them and can't migrate elsewhere as the buffalo used to do at such times. What you end up with is a very large hunk of Texas, a strip hundreds of miles wide running down the middle of the state where worry over drought is a basic part of rural human existence. Drought has helped shape us Texans as a people, if we are still one in such mixing bowl times as these, and it keeps on shaping hell out of those of us who have anything to do with the land. It lurks and skulks on the outskirts of the luscious seasons. Whenever a few weeks go by without rain, some people start crying, dry doom, and in the nature of things, they sometimes have to be right. In one or another part of the state, in fact, they're likely to be right at almost any time. And in my own part of it, they're right right now, and have been for nearly a year and a half. It is early November as I write this, and since a year ago last May, my place, which lies about 10 miles east of the 98th meridian in north-central Texas, has not received any generous rain, the kind that falls in quantity and is followed not by dry winds and bright sun that snatch it back into the atmosphere, but rather by cloudy weather and more rain to drive moisture into the root zone of grasses and crops and trees and down through the subsoil to bedrock, 
along which it percolates to the bases of dirt bluffs along the watercourses and emerges as cool seep springs. Our creek, normally a good one for this area, is dry and has been so for months, except when a transient storm has set it trickling for a day or so, or maybe as much as a week. You can dig a four-foot corner post hole, and a clod from its bottom, if you crumble it in your hand, will turn to dust. Many stock ponds have shrunk to puddles or cracked dry mud. Some brushy plants and even oaks in gravelly places are dead. Expensive exotic grasses sowed in spring by neighbors of mine came up with May showers and then died too. We got no surplus honey from the bees this summer since even the plants that managed to bloom yielded little nectar and like many others in the region I've cut my little herd of cows to half its usual size fortunately selling the culls in a favorable market. But much of the cash they brought will have to go into feed for the survivors this winter, which looks fair to be a sort of Mongolian one, with big, dry, frigid winds that raise dust to sting your face. It's a blessing at such times to be, in part, a dilettante, not heavily dependent on the climate's quirks for a living, but others whom I know and care about are dependent, cattlemen and farmers both. Not far away, men who raise peanuts on sandy land are hoping barely to make back from a fractional crop the cost of their seed and fertilizer and the payments on the heavy, costly equipment they use. But in their heads, they're rehearsing eloquence to use on creditors if they don't. Drought. You don't have to be a full believer in the theory of the 22-year cycles based on sunspot patterns to feel a certain sick quiver of your insides when you note that it's only 21 since the big bad one of the 50s ended, so that another year or so of the same could well be looming ahead. Nor do you have to be a fundamentally sour-natured fellow to blaspheme with sincerity when you wake up in the morning and gaze out at yet another clear sky full of stars, portending another fine day. It is part of the shaping I mentioned. When the weather around here is not too dry, it's sometimes awful in other ways, for our moisture, when it does come, takes the form of gentle soaking rain only on occasion. High winds and hail and lightning and flooding are fascinating conversational fodder, and when two or more countrymen get on such subjects, the tales multiply like combat anecdotes among a beery group of veterans of Guadalcanal or the Bulge. I am thus inflicted myself, but also aware of the danger of long-windedness inherent in such excursions. Here, let me merely note the time when lightning whacked our tin barn. I was watching from the front porch of the house and staggered over against the sweeping sheets of rain to see if the bolt had started a fire. It hadn't, though it had made junk out of the structure's wiring system, and some twenty-five Spanish goats that had taken refuge under the front overhang were lying about in various contorted positions, some groaning in human tones, others knocked out cold. The billy, a black, ill-smelling specimen known as Martin Shockley, was lying on his back with the points of his wide horns stuck in the ground, his four legs in the air, and a peaceful look on his face. All recovered, but they stayed paranoid concerning that place of shelter for months afterwards, refusing at first to come there even for corn or oats. Or consider, if I may allow myself just one more anecdote, our sole close tornado, 
a small one that passed through the yard of the old farmhouse near Fort Worth that we leased and lived in when we first married. It exploded our stone garage, plucked my canoe from the rafters to deposit it unharmed high up in the angle iron of underpinnings of a water tower 75 feet away, defeathered and destroyed some bantams, made a great deal of noise, but somehow missed the house. I was away, and when a neighbor hurried over just afterward to see how my wife had fared, she met him at the door. I'm fine, she said in a firm, clear voice. It didn't really bother me at all. Yes, ma'am, said the neighbor. Maybe you better let me hold that baby a minute, said infant, having gone purple from near strangulation as it dangled from the crook of her arm by its neck. It used to be that nearly all country homes in these parts of Texas, even stark boxing plank shacks, had a storm cellar dug nearby where the family would repair when the sky grew dark and the clouds turned sulfur green, and some clans had a reputation for going to the cellar at the slightest provocation. Few are being built these days, though the early 60s with their emphasis on fallout shelters spawned a few fancy specimens on ranches of the well-to-do, and a good many of the rest of us who live out where approaching storms are visible from afar in all their glory and frightfulness have occasion every year or two or three to wish we had been provident enough to excavate one too. But then the storm passes, and we fall back on the comforting reflection that if there were very much chance of a tornado hitting any given spot, there wouldn't be any old houses left in the region. The climate's propensity toward drought and violence has prevented even the brashest chambers of commerce from getting very lyrical about it. But perhaps a bit inconsistently, I'd like to set down my own opinion that, except for those things, it really isn't too bad. You only need to have lived a couple of years or so in places where snow and cold feet last for six months each year to appreciate the fact that our own rhythmic winters, with warmish, damp gulf air pushing up time and again and time and again being shoved back south by cold fronts from the north, are very mild stuff, even if the two rough ones just behind us did give us a taste of what Yankees have taken for granted year after year. Thus, John Graves, indulging in one of the world's oldest rituals, talking about the weather, but doing nothing about it. He'll continue in that vein here on the bookshelf as we read his book, From a Limestone Ledge. Join us again next time when Graves dives into the lore and folksy beliefs about weather. Vern Wyndham is executive producer of the bookshelf. I'm Tom Bacon. (laughs) 